Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's weather, right? You know what they call last week's weather? Fool's spring. Two words, not one. Fool's spring. That was last week. Beautiful days, sunshiny, t-shirt weather, really. Uh, and uh, today we have a third winter. That's what it's classified as. You wake up and the snow's pouring down in early March. That's what's called third winter, especially for northeast Washington, man alive. We just seem to get uh, we just seem to get drilled. Really want everybody to come tonight, watch the movie. Although I will say, and we have some uh, cross country stars in our midst, some local runners. I won't say where they're sitting, but they're sitting over here. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about running. I hope you guys have looked up a couple of verses. Right? Uh, it talks about fleeing from sin. But also has this weird one, and this is the one that I said. If you want a personal verse, if you guys just look at me, even with uh, squinted eyes, you will know that I'm not really into running. Can we all agree on that? Say amen. amen. And I really say amen. Proverbs 28.1 is one of those verses that's really conflicting about somebody running with nobody chasing them. It's kind of dicey, Rebecca. You might want to look it up. All right, we'll get to the message. We're really excited. We've just gone through uh, quite a few uh, weeks, actually several months, uh, looking at First and Second Peter, what Peter has to say to the church uh, then, and what Peter has to say to the church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even today. And uh, I, I will admit, just kind of thinking back about that whole series, like it was really, it, and I'm not talking about my preaching part of it, but just what Peter has to say, what the Holy Spirit's saying to people today, was really good. But let's be honest, it was pretty heavy, wasn't it? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you guys agree? Like, it's good to not. This is a great time to not. It was some heavy messages, I will admit, but I won't apologize for, for sure, that uh, we need... We need our world rocked a little bit right now in Christianity. We need to be uh, pushed out of our comfort zone. We need to take a good long look at where things are at in our own personal lives, where things are at in the church. Uh, we need to uh, repent of things where we're in error. And uh, we need to continue to strive forward, strive, strive forward, living uh, by the Spirit, as Peter says, and uh, strive forward to do the things that God calls us to do and live out His will for us individually, as families, as marriages, and also as a church. And so, I don't make any apology for the heaviness of some of those sermons were pretty tough, uh, but I think really, really applicable uh, for, for us, and especially where we're at here in our culture. As I mentioned last week, um, we're kind of starting into this um, little short, more of a topical series, you might say, uh, leading up till the Resurrection Sunday, four weeks we have here. And uh, in these four weeks, we're going to look at four snapshots of the life of Jesus leading up to the events of his crucifixion, of his death, his burial, and then his resurrection coming up on Resurrection Sunday. And so looking at these four snapshots, and as I was praying and reading the Word, um, the Lord really impressed upon me to go right to uh, perhaps what's the most well-known verse in the Bible. 
In fact, I would say it's the greatest, and I've shared this before from the pulpit, I think it's the greatest verse in the Bible. Uh, I think it has the, the, the widest, broadest message. It has the most impactful statements. We're going to look at that, and I want to wrap this snapshot up with this kind of a title. It's the Father's loving gift. It's the Father's loving gift to people. So today's snapshot, we're going to look at actually two conversations that happen in the same chapter. One of those conversations was a late night conversation about the things of God, about the kingdom of God, and just two men. If you watch the, if you watch the Chosen series at all, and I would encourage anybody and everybody to watch the, the Chosen series. It's a little mini-series. Season one uh, has been out for quite a while, and they're working on getting season two out. But uh, that, particular, uh, that particular episode that brings out this conversation was, for me, the most impactful for all of those. I mean, you just, you just sat there kind of spellbound at the words of Christ and how He, com- how he conveys who God really is and what God's really up to. And it's all taken place in this late night kind of, you know, conversation that's just two men uh, uh, kind of face to face, if it were, and just talking about the things of God. It's really impactful. We're going to look at that one. We're going to look at the next one, actually, in that same chapter that's completely different. It's a conversation that happens in the daytime. Uh, It's about a dwindling ministry and a a ministry that's really on the rise. And and the conversation that takes place uh, between those gentlemen really, in a lot of ways, looks completely different. Yet, when we get to the end of that conversation and how the Apostle John writes it down, we're really going to see that those two conversations end at the same spot. They really do. And so it's exciting to uh, dive into that because I think that as we look at these components, these snapshots of Jesus' life here on earth, this one really stands out the most. Nicodemus was the, one of the fellows that came to Jesus by cover of darkness to ask a question and understand what Jesus was really teaching regarding regarding to entering and participating in the kingdom of God. Jesus, at this point in the storyline in the Gospels, had, had, you know, there was a following, an ups, upswell of people that were following him, and of course, that made the Jewish religious leaders nervous. They don't like competition. They hate and abhor competition, and they're willing to put a stamp of heresy on anything that does not feed their system, that does not prop up their system, that does not uh, uphold you know, what they see as, as classical uh, religious Jewish values and teaching. And so here comes Jesus, and he's completely different. He's completely, he, he acts differently, he teaches differently, he has a different sense about him, and people are kind of starting to flock to him. And so they want to know why. And a lot of them came to him with contempt. A lot of these religious leaders you'll see throughout the the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they came to him with a sense of disgust. They came to him with a a real, like, you know, questioning who he really is and, and, and not willing to believe in what he had to say. They came to him with, like I said, just a, a hardened heart. 
They came to him with a heart full of pride about their own thoughts, their own ways, their own beliefs, were unwilling to understand what he was saying. And so there was, there's always this tension there. There's always tension there. If you, leave, if you read through the Gospels, really, you can put this down and write it in the margin if you're bulletin if you want to. Jesus really interacted with people in two basic categories, two basic ways. He met those that came with, to him with contempt or pride or arrogance. He met them with the law. He took them back to the Old Testament, and he took them back to the law and said, hey, this is what you say you believe, then apply this. Or you might want to check yourself because you're violating this. Or you might want to, you know, in other words, he took those people back to what Moses had to say. The other category of people that Jesus interacted with were people that came to him in humility, in honest curiosity, people that came to him wanting to know, wanting to understand, wanting to be healed. And those type of people, Jesus met with grace he met with mercy, he met with compassion, he met with love. I think Nicodemus falls into that type of category. Even though he was a religious leader, I think that Nicodemus, if you read through the whole storyline, Nicodemus is one of those guys that ends up later in the, in the storyline uh, of the life of Jesus. But I think his conversation with, was, with Nicodemus was in that second category. Because I think he generally did want to know. And... Uh, I think that that's brought out, that aspect. I, I believe that even before the Chosen series came out. But if you watch that particular episode, you will see, or the s- several episodes, you will really see this idea of Nicodemus kind of in that, mm, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I think that he was curious whether Jesus was the one or not. That's what they were really looking for. That's what the religious leaders were supposed to be about. They were supposed to be the one that really saw the Messiah coming. And so they ran everything through this, their tight filter, not God's filter of the Messiah. They ran everything, and, and anybody that would pose, uh, that would be in that category that would bring up, is this the Messiah? They ran them through their own personal filter, their own religious filter. And I think Nicodemus was the one of those religious leaders that was able to just back away from that line of thought just enough and see Jesus for who he was, that it led him to this curious conversation. It led him in curiosity to this conversation. In their conversation, Nicodemus, in talking about the kingdom and entering into the kingdom, he asked the question there in chapter 3 of the book of John, Jesus replies to him in this way. He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Most assuredly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that reply, the reply from Jesus created even more confusion, I believe, for Nicodemus. In other words, how, how is this even possible? He's completely thinking in the physical realm. How is this even possible? Like, this is not... Let's be honest, this is not physically possible, Jesus. What are you talking about? Why, why do you use these terms? It's likely that Nicodemus, like most Jews, were looking for the Messiah to bring this transformation 
to Israel, and yet Jesus talked in a completely different way. And he talked about completely different things. See, the change that Israel was looking for was kind of in three general categories, you might say. The change that Israel desired was prioritized this way. It was prioritized, one, political. They wanted transformation. They wanted transformation, but they wanted it in a political sense. They wanted the the reign of the Messiah to reign over Israel. And right now, they are being oppressed by the Roman government to no end. And, and there's this unholy alliance, this wicked alliance between Roman leadership, Roman government, and their own Jewish religious leadership that really, if you look at it, is really, really, really frustrating for the people. That's why so many people were turned on towards Jesus. Because it was a completely different message. They're tired of the oppression, and here was a guy that spoke words of freedom spoke words of love and words of life. The second category that Israel wanted transformation is they really wanted national transformation. They want political transformation. They want national transformation. In other words, the gathering of all Israel. That's always a high priority. And in a good way, there is an aspect of that that's good, um, the gathering of Israel. And we live in a time right now in 2021 where there are more uh, Jews that have come to Israel and, and live in the nation of Israel than ever before. And so there's been this kind of returning, as it were. Uh, and these dynamics were true then, too. They really wanted the gathering of all Israel. But the motive, I think, behind that was what was askew. They wanted the gathering of all Israel so the focus would be on Israel to then be able to overcome and and overthrow the Roman leadership. So the national transformation is kind of part of the political transformation. The third transformation that unfortunately for Israel in that day was really um, drug along behind, but it's really the area that Jesus talked about the most, and that's moral transformation. See, I think that Israel did want a moral transformation. But it was just like a lower priority. They wanted their freedom first, physically, before they wanted their spiritual freedom. I think Jesus brought a message that was 180 degrees different than that. In that moral transformation, they were looking for the cleansing and the spiritual renewal of God's people. That was really Jesus' area. And if they would have listened to his messages, rather than constantly try to rebuke or trap him, I think they'd have been far better off. Back to the story. Jesus' reply to Nicodemus was shocking. And as I just mentioned, his priorities were in reverse order. Rather than a physical renewal, he was talking about a spiritual renewal. In other words, you're going to be born of the water. You're going to be born naturally. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. But you're also to be, if you're going to see the kingdom, you need to be born spiritually. You need to be born of the Holy Spirit. You need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. So let's jump in there. The next verse, turn your Bibles or watch up on the screen. That kind of sets the stage for these verses. Verse 14 says, And Moses, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, it says, Moses was lifted up, lifted up the servant, servant, <laughs> serpent, 
in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is referring back to the events that happened in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21 verse 9, as the Hebrews were making their way through the wilderness, they began to grumble about their provision. And in discouragement, they said there in Numbers, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent a fiery serpent among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That's a bad day if you're part of that crowd. That's a bad day to be a whiner about what God's doing. That's a real bad day to, to, to grumble about the Lord's provision. Oh, this worthless It was brand new. Every single morning they had fresh provisions. Every single day they had fresh food, fresh water, fresh bread to eat, manna, quail, the perfect diet. Every day it was brand new. Nothing left over in the fridge. You know, nothing in the Ziploc bags in the back of the fridge. Starts getting a little green. Nothing to complain about being held over. In fact, they were really judged if they held over. Right? But they continue to grumble about God's provision. God says, all right. I'll get your attention. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. <clears throat> and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. When the people started to die because they were complaining about God's provision, it's a serious matter. We get that? Like, that's a head-turner. When we start dropping right here on the floor, right out of our chairs, because we're complaining about God's provision, all of a sudden, everybody starts looking real quick. Woo! What's going on? Why is this happening? Therefore the people came to Moses, verse 7 says, and We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said in verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made the bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Notice that God does not remove the source of death. God didn't take the snake. He could have, he could have said, all right, get out of here, you little slimy devils. You know, quit biting the people. Leave my people alone. He doesn't do that. God doesn't take away the source of sin. He doesn't take away the source of death. Rather, he provides a way to be healed from it. That those who Jesus is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying about himself back in John chapter four, uh, 3, verse 14. That's who Jesus is saying he is. That those who look upon as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, and he's saying, hey, Jesus is saying the same thing that, that God said back in the book of Numbers. Jesus is saying that about himself. He says, you want healing from your snake bites? Do you want recovery from sin? Do you want a whole new life to live that's completely different? Do you want to be an overcomer? 
from them sinful snake bites? He says, look at me. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. So must Jesus be lifted up. If Jesus is just an intellectual Savior and not, uh, not transformative in our lives, He's not lifted up in our lives. And so He's saying, hey, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus is lifted up and when we believe in Him, we get healed from our greatest enemy, death. When Jesus is lifted up, when we're healed by Jesus in that sense, right? And, and we're going to get into more about that in the second conversation. Then we have the, then we're given, we're given the ability to overcome death. Not in our own strength, in Jesus' strength. Jesus goes on to speak about the Father's greatest gift and the greatest verse in the Bible. We could really all quote it blindfoldedly. For God so loved the world, verse 16 says, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The greatest, book, the greatest verse in, in the whole Bible. It's really a verse that's the complete package of the message of God, the message of Christ. The greatest Greatest verse in the Bible. John 3.16 is an awesome verse. It's the greatest verse in the Bible. and From it, we learn a couple of things. We learn the object of God's love, the expression of God's love, the gift of God's love, the recipient of God's love, the intention of God's love, and also the duration of God's love. We may say that there's seven wonders in the John 3.16. The Almighty Authority, God Himself. The mightiest motive, the mightiest motive, so love the world. If you stop and think and look in your Bible there at John 3.16 and read it with a little bit different emphasis and put the emphasis this way, for God so loved the world. For God so, emphasize so in your mind, for God so loved the world. Men, it, can I ask you this? How much do you love your family? How much do you love your, your wife and your kids? How much do you love the people that are around you? Do you love them so much that you would fill in the blank? You fill in the blank for yourself. Like how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to, to exercise and, and emphasize how far is your so? Because God's so is that He so loved the world. He so loved you and he loved me, and he loved the kids downstairs, and he loved everybody and loves everybody that's traveling on the highway and the people in that town and the people up in the country. And you just run the fingers out from here in every direction. God so loved. He was so motivated by love. That's why we call it the mightiest motivation. He so loved the world that he sent the best. He sent the best. He didn't run a, you know, he didn't, he didn't call an audible there, run a play to, to kind of set something else up. No, he said, this is it. And, and this, is, this is the one. He so loved the world that he sent the best of himself. The greatest gift. The gift of his son. The greatest sacrifice. 
That's why when we look back in uh, the pages of Genesis and read the story about Abraham and Isaac, that's a, that's a whole picture of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain as a demonstration, as a look forward to what God was going to do. Now, in their case, God provided an alternative, but he took Abraham right to the edge. He took Abraham and Isaac right to the razor's edge, whether he was going to sacrifice his only son. And so when you read John 3.16, or when you share John 3.16 with people, do, do yourself a favor, do them a favor. Emphasize the word so. I think it's actually the most important word in the whole sentence, in the whole verse. This is a demonstration of God's motive. How far was he willing to go? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift. Jesus is the greatest gift we could ever receive. That's why we're looking at this as a snapshot. Because the best message, the greatest gift that you could ever receive is the gift of Jesus in your life and as king of your life, as lord of your life as Savior of life. The greatest gift that you could in turn turn and share with other people is simply the gift of Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, that whoever, the wildest welcome. Uh, this was a, this was a uh, moment of cerebral explosion, I'm sure, for Nicodemus. <laughs> this blew his mind that whoever, that you would have a, a, a Jewish teacher, uh, a, a, an upstart ministry leader in that day, that you would have him saying these words and not being selective just for the Jewish race, that whoever believes in him, the wildest welcome, the easiest escape, the easiest escape away from the snakes is simply to believe in Christ. Whoever believes in him should not perish, that phrase should not perish, the divine deliverance should not perish but have everlasting life, the priceless possession that you can obtain, that I can obtain, that we can have as a free gift. That we could live eternally. Hey, nobody, nobody's getting out, you know, nobody's getting off of this earth physically uh, alive. The death rate's 100%, right? So fearing death, fearing death then becomes our biggest enemy. But it's death himself that Jesus came to conquer. It's death himself that he has overcome. We'll get into that in weeks to come. Rather, we can have eternal life. Are we filled with that joy because of the gift of Jesus? It's one of the questions I have in my notes. Are we filled? Are you filled with that joy on a regular basis? Are we, are we slowing down our life enough, creating a little margin in life so that we can enjoy and have God's joy in that everyday circumstance, even when things are tough, even when things aren't going our way, even when we have lots of questions and, and there's tons of uncertainty. And there is a ton of uncertainty in our culture. There's a ton of uncertainty in our lives. There's things that happen all the time that are, that are there to distract us away from 
and to run in opposition to having God's joy in our lives. You know what? Hey, we can live forever. This is just rehearsal. This is just a dry run. Are you overflowing with that excitement because of the greatest verse in the Bible with the greatest motivation is the greatest gift for you and for you to share? As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I made this statement, and I want to apply it to John 3.16 in this way. God loves the world and is determined to rescue it. Do we get that? For God so loved the world. God loves the world. He loves the people. I'm not talking about the planet. I'm not talking about, you know, a system of thinking. There's kind of when we talk about the world, we talk about it in three different contexts. Sometimes it's the people, sometimes it's the globe, uh, and sometimes it's a world system of thinking. But it's the people. It's the people. God is focused on the people. He's focused on the people. The other two will fall in line with the people. The globe will fall in line with where people are going. The care for and the stewardship of our earth will fall in line as people come to faith in Christ. The world system of thinking, our social mindsets, that will change as people and more and more and more people come to faith in Christ. But it starts with the people. God loves the world. He loves the people of the earth throughout the ages, and he's determined to rescue it. And this is where it gets a little spicy. Because the rescue mission of God is a confrontation with sin and every evil practice. That's what God's love looks like. And so at one, on, one, on one hand, we, we, we have this warm and fuzzy feeling of who God is. And on the other side, we have this understanding that God loves you so much that He's not willing that you should perish he wants to confront sin in our lives. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came, to confront sin in our lives. To give us eternal life? Absolutely. But that comes as, a <clears throat> that comes as part of a process, as it were, so to speak, that God is confronting sin in our lives. That's how much he loves us. He's not willing to let us stay as we were. He's creating a whole new you a whole new me with a whole new identity in him. And that confrontation is what Jesus is referring to next in these next few verses. Referring to himself, he says this in verse 18. He who believes in him, in other words, the man that believes in me, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, <clears throat> this is the condemnation that the light of the world, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So Jesus kind of lays out for Nicodemus this, this contrast. He lays out this contrast between darkness and light, between life and death, between being rescued 
and staying in the darkness and, 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 and hiding away. And there's a hinge word in there that really makes the difference for people. And if you're a Christ follower, you know that this is true already. If you're a Christ follower, you know that, there's, that, that relief comes, relief comes, a sense of freedom comes in this word right here. When we don't do like those that are hiding in the dark, but we come to the light and all of our works are exposed. When our works are exposed in a good and a healthy way, when we confess those things and, and repent of the evil that we've done, there's a transformation that takes place and a release that takes place where that sin or those sins or those, those things that we've been a part of don't impact us anymore. We're free from that. We're set free. And it only happens, it only happens through transparency. That's why the word exposure is in there. Because when we don't want to be transparent in our lives, when we don't want to be real about who we are in Christ and the things that we struggle with, and we don't want to confess our sins, we don't want to come to the light, we stay in that darkness, and the darkness that's within us stays unexposed. Rather, Jesus says, expose it. Expose it. Now, the second conversation, the second conversation that we're going to see is a little different. From the standpoint that it's a different setting, it's not late-night conversation between two men. It is a conversation amongst men, though. And it involves uh, this idea that I mentioned earlier, that there's frustration and questions about one ministry that's on the decline and another ministry that's on the rise. Both conversations end with essentially the same point. And it's a wonderful snapshot of the life of Christ through a conversation about Christ. The next verse tells us, the Apostle John tells us this. He says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptized in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. So the apostle John's talking about John the Baptist in kind of this remembrance sort of a way, and he, and he throws this idea, this, let's start with it backwards a little bit in verse 24. He's saying, this was all before John the Baptist was thrown in prison. He gets some, puts a little you know, context in there for us. Uh, that whole part of the storyline about John the Baptist is intriguing all by itself. John the Baptist was thrown in prison and eventually beheaded because he stood for God's timeless truth of marriage. Uh, but John the Apostle is writing about John the Baptist and these events that took place was all prior to all of that. Both groups, as it were, John the Baptist had a following, Jesus had a following, they all ended up at the same place uh, because there was much water there. I've never been to the Middle East. I've been to places like Utah and Arizona and Nevada uh, where if you wanted to baptize, baptize somebody, you're probably looking for some you know, farmer's water, some rancher's watering trough so you can you know, put them under the H2O. But there was a lot of water there, so it became a quick and easy place, convenient place 
to baptize new believers. Verse 25 says, Then it arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. A little note on that is that uh, there was, both for John the Baptist's ministry and for Jesus' ministry, there were these like Jewish religious leaders that kind of trailed around and uh, they were kind of the religion cops of the day, if I can use that phrase. They were the kind of guys, they wanted to go, we're just here to observe. We're just here to make sure you're doing it all right. We're here to cross-check your theology, Jesus. (coughs) As if he didn't write the Bible. They didn't know that. They were unwilling to know that. They did the same with John the Baptist. They wanted to know if what he was teaching was true. They wanted to know if what he was teaching was right. John the Baptist, of course, Jesus' cousin, had a lot of the same flair when it came to uh, dealing with these guys that Jesus had. Uh, Jesus gave him this long you know, litany of, of uh, descriptions uh, later on in his ministry. John the Baptist was uh, straightforward and called him a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers, he said. You know, who warned you of the coming wrath? That was John the Baptist's famous line in regard to these religious guys. But they were always there. They were always kind of trailing around, you know, double-checking these guys, making sure that what they were doing was right. And in this particular situation, they got into a verbal squabble with some of John's disciples. Verse 26 says, Then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Says, hey, 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 John's guys, hey, we're, we're losing our people. They're all going over here. They're all going to, you help this guy get his ministry started now. All of our people are leaving us, and they're going to his church. Essentially was their words. They were frustrated. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been what? What's that next word? given to him from heaven. It's a father's gift. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John's laying out again and reminding his, his, the people that were with him, the, the men and women that were following him in this ministry, that Hey, I'm not the guy. I'm only the guy that's here to point to the guy. But I'm not the guy. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. John really falls into the category of the last Old Testament prophet talking about the coming Messiah. Verse 29 says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This joy of mine is fulfilled. John's saying, hey, I'm not the guy. I'm the guy that's standing up with the guy. And my attention is focused on him. Your attention, he says, in in a sense, if you want my paraphrase, your attention should be on him. All the focus on the wedding party is on the two that are in the front. And I'm filled with joy that I get to watch the bridegroom come forth. 
than the famous line that is used in a lot of context. One of the shorter verses in the Bible, John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus has got to be on the rise, he says to his people. He's got to be elevated, and I have to be, you know, go down. This is not about me. This is not about what we have going on. He says, I'm fulfilling the purpose that God had for me in pointing to him, but he's on the rise. So we have to focus there. Our ministry is going to shrink, he says. The more that Jesus is lifted up, the more that people are drawn to him, the more that we point to him, this will be the natural occasion. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. One of the things that we pray about before we come out here to start a service every morning, every Sunday morning, is that it wouldn't, it's not about us. It's not about how, how, it's not about the preacher, it's not about the worship leaders, it's not about the individual, you know, instruments. It's not about how awesome we sound together when we all sing together. Those things are all enjoyable. Those things are all great. Those things are all profitable and should be encouraging and uplifting and, and uh, inspiring in a way. But that's not why we're here. We're not here to hear a mini concert and a short little message. We're here to do exactly what John the Baptist was telling his guys when he says, we have to get down so, and lift Jesus up. So we're here to praise God. That's what Sunday morning's about. We're here to come to collectively together to hear from him and to be encouraged to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. To be encouraged the body. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. It's a little rebuke from the John the Baptist about the reality that oftentimes his followers, just like what's common to man, so to speak, is that our eyes are often in the wrong spot. Our eyes are often on the wrong person. or in the, We have the wrong focus, you might say. Maybe the wrong expectation. They were expecting John the Baptist's ministry to really flourish. Hey, he was a fire breather, man, right? Wouldn't you say that that's a good thing? Like, if you read and study up about John the Baptist in any way, wouldn't you say that somebody that comes into a culture like that or a culture like ours, you know, and is willing to stand up and just... Boom, you know, breathe fire in front of people and say, hey, you brood of vipers, you know, and really get excited. And isn't that fun to listen to? I'm using a little voice inflection on purpose. I hope nobody went into defib. <laughs> I don't see anybody falling over. Those are fun to listen. That's good. And I'm not saying it's a bad or an evil thing. What I'm saying is, is the focus right? Is our attentions in the right spot? Is our expectations in the right person and our understanding and our praise and our worship focused towards Christ? And John the Baptist is saying, hey, hey, don't focus on the earthly things. Focus on the one who is from above. He's the one that really counts. And no one's receiving his testimony. But Mark, didn't you just say that people were flocking to Jesus? Didn't you just? Yeah, that's true. That is true. 
But in the big scheme of things, John the Baptist knew something that was going on in a broader context. He knew that the nation of Israel as a whole was kind of saying no to Jesus. Right? So when he says no one, I think he's referring to a broader peace of the nation. And he circles back in to talk about the individual in that sense in verse 33 where he says, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. The word certified there means to stamp or a signet, have a, with a signet or a private mark for security or preservation, literally or figuratively, by implication to keep secret and to attest to. Kind of like in the, back in the day when they sealed an envelope by pouring wax on it. You'd fold the envelope or fold the letter over and you'd pour a puddle of wax, and then oftentimes the king would take his ring, and he would press it down as that wax starts to harden just a little bit, and he would put his stamp, as that's where they get the word stamp, they get that stamp of his ring, like, and if you can imagine, you know, so like, if it was Tom Brady's Super Bowl rings, you know, it'd have to be an envelope like this wide, because, you know, he's pressing down with two fingers, or two hands, but you guys get the point. You're going to see that image. You're going to see that picture. You're going to see that stamp, that signet. You're going to see it show up. It's going to harden as the, as the wax hardens. You're going to see that. So the people receiving it would know, A, who it was from, if it was authentic or not, and that they would also know that if that seal was broken, that somehow whatever was contained in that letter was compromised. Right? John the Baptist is saying, He who has received his testimony is certified or that God is true. The old King James says this, He that hath received his testimony has set his seal, that stamp, he set his seal on the fact that God is true. That word seal there out of the old King James is probably a better look than the word certified in the new King James. But it's that same word that's used throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, where John, the same writer of this gospel, who wrote the book of Revelation, wrote about the sealed scrolls in Revelation 5, or the 144,000 witnesses that were sealed in Revelation 7. Or the fact in Revelation 20 that Satan is sealed up. Satan and his demons are sealed up. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, he's not the only one that wrote using this phrase. Paul wrote about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Every believer being sealed by the Holy Spirit or having God's stamp on them because of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. That there's evidence there. There's a, there's a, a truth that is uh, inescapable when we're sealed with the Holy Spirit that Paul wrote about. And of course, Matthew, leading up to coming weeks and messages, Matthew wrote about a particular seal, the stone being sealed up over the tomb of Jesus in Matthew 27. Spurgeon says this, 
Charles Spurgeon says that when you believe in Jesus, you have set your seal to the testimony of Jesus, which is the revelation of the Lord. In other words, you understand, you've, you've, you've received revelation, you understand what His Word says. I like to use this phrase. We come to understand that Jesus is who He says He is. So that it's not Mark's interpretation of who Jesus is. It's not your interpretation of who Jesus is. It's not some famous person's interpretation of who Jesus says He is. It's not some infamous you know, cult leader who puts a spin on who Jesus says He is. It's just simply believing Jesus' words about Jesus. Right? That's what Spurgeon's getting at. When you, let me give you the whole quote. When you believe in Jesus, you have set your seal on the testimony of Jesus, which is the revelation of the Lord. You have certified that you believe in God as true. That you've certified, that you understand, that you've come to that spot where you understand that, hey, God is who He says He is according to His words, according to His uh, written word. And I'm left at this crossroads of understanding. Do I believe that or do I not believe that? Am I willing to have faith in that? Am I willing to walk away from that? Right? Some people aren't ready. You know, if the fruit's not ripe, don't pick it. That's kind of <laughs> that's if you want my, you know, evangelism speech. If the fruit's not ripe, don't pick it. Just keep sharing the word of truth with them. God's the only one that can bring people's hearts to a point and to a crossroads of life, whether they believe and are they willing to walk out this truth, this dynamic, to set their own seal that God is true. I used to listen to Dave Ramsey quite a bit, and he'd use this phrase. He would say, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So in sharing Christ with people, you can't push them beyond what they're willing to believe is true because it's really not going to make a difference. All we can do is we share the truth, we live the truth, we be a blessing, we join God in His work of John 3.16 in loving the world, loving God's people, loving everybody. Right? Womb to tomb as it said, that everybody has value, that everybody has that stamp of God, they're created in His image, and our response is to simply share Him with as many people as we can possibly come in contact with. That happens via message, that happens via doing life together, those are those rare occasions where uh, you have a, what do we say, a divine appointment with people that you never thought that you would talk to, you never thought you would come in contact with. How do you respond in those situations? How do you, how do you share Christ in those situations? How do you, you know, carry a consistent testimony, whether it's here today or tomorrow or, in my case, few days ago when a guy took a hard left right in front of me and uh, we swapped paint how how do you care do, are we to jump am I to jump out of my pickup and yell and scream and cuss at this guy because he just totaled my truck 
Or do I get out and say, hey, it's all right. It's only sheet metal. Right? It's only sheet metal. Are you okay? I'm okay. Are you okay? Did you get hurt? Caring about people's welfare, caring about people's health, caring about people's safety is far more valuable. Are we living that out? Is it exhibited in our life? Is the seal, is your seal, your certified uh, truth of your life that God is real, that Jesus is who he says he is, is that exhibited on a regular basis? One of the greatest things about this is that he demonstrated for us what it means to live by the Spirit. What it means to live by the Spirit. John writes in verse 34 that God does not give the Spirit sparingly. Let's look back at that real quick as we gear up to close. Verse 34. For whom God has sent, speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. God does not give the Spirit. He does not, he does not give out His Spirit by measure. This was a transformative and a pivotal word in that day. And he's talking about Jesus, first person to live, first human to live by the Spirit, you know, all the way through, Jesus was. But for us, but for us, at Pentecost, God poured out his Spirit amongst his people. We have the joy, we have the privilege that what people throughout the ages never had. They had the Spirit by measure. They had the spirit that, that they could come in contact with every time Isaiah or Jeremiah or some of these Old Testament prophets or Moses or Joshua. People back then had the, the privilege of being around the spirit in, in spots and times and occasions. They lived with the spirit by measure, as it were. We get to live with the spirit on a moment-by-moment basis because he's indwelt amongst every believer. In fact, not only that, he says, John tells us that he goes on to say that the Father has put all things into Jesus' hand. There's kind of a parallel passage that John writes later on in 1 John 4, 13 through 16. And if somebody will go down and get the kids to come up for communion, we'll wrap it up with these verses. The same author who wrote the Gospel of John wrote this, By this we know that we abide in him. This is how we know that we're in Christ. And He in us, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because He's given us, because He's given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. And He in God. And we know and believe the love that God has for us God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. As the kids are coming up, there's an open invitation for everyone to believe in, to trust in, and to have faith in Christ. If you're here and you're not a believer, and this is all like brand new or foreign, you're just kind of checking it out, you're not sure, come, come and talk to, to myself, any one of the people that were up here for worship, or a, a leader, or greeter at the door. If you would like to know more. But this invitation goes beyond just our salvation experience. Really, it's an invitation to live 
the fullness of all that God has for us. This is our hope for a hopeless world. This is our message in a world that's overstuffed with information. This is the rock of our faith in a culture of shifting sand. And this is our shared gift, the gift that we receive from the Father. The gift that we receive from the Father. This is our gift that we can share amongst a hurting culture. David, will you come on up and do communion?